Well, good morning, church family. I love listening to you guys worship. It's beautiful. And I want to just make a note real quick that those songs that we sang are thematic to the text we'll be in this morning, and that did not happen by happenstance. Brandon prayed about it. He read the text. And the goal is that all these things would be intertwined together to prompt our heart to worship. And, um, you know, sometimes you're like, where did they get that weird phrase? Why would they say it that way? Again, Brandon's added to the weekly newsletter, just a plug to sign up, that um, in that weekly newsletter, there's a thing called the Worship Initiative where it explains the songs and connects it to Scripture. Pretty cool. So uh, that's something I'd encourage you to look at. But let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get ready to dive into the Word, but first let's pray. God, you're so beautiful. You're so kind to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts right now. God, I pray as we are all going through various trials, whether we are on the mountaintop, on the decline down, in the valley, or on the way up, the Christian walk is just this current constant cycle. God, I pray that you would meet us where we are and that you would speak to us and that you would minister to us in, in that season. Lord, open our eyes to your, to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in 1 Peter, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And we are continuing our series, Living for What Lasts. We're going to be in 1 Peter 1.6, and we know the thing that lasts is the kingdom of God. So that's the thing we want to live for. And, you know, it'd be one thing if it lasted and we had no chance at it, but we've been invited into this kingdom and once we answer the invitation, once we take up that invitation, we become citizens of that kingdom. And when you are a citizen, you have a command and a commission. Matthew 28, we've been commissioned to advance the kingdom of God by making disciples. Last week, in verses 3 through 5, we learned about our living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we were also promised an eternal inheritance. Peter is explaining how we are to live as called out exiles in light of suffering. That's kind of one of the themes of the book. And we, as Christians, will face trials and suffering in life. That's just a fact. This week, Peter is still building on the ideas that he made last week. And we're going to look at a... a a handcrafted faith. The scriptures paint God as a master craftsman, as an artist, as an artisan, who is molding and forging us for a purpose to be used in his kingdom. Look with me at Ephesians 2. It says it this way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his craftsmanship. Created in Christ for a purpose, 
and that purpose is good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We will see in our passage this morning that the master is using suffering and trials to form us into what he wants us to be. So let's look at what's true. We, 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 we frame it like this every week with what's true and what we do. So what's true? God is using every situation in your life to craft you into the image of his son, preparing you for future glory. Well, again, that's kind of a lofty idea. What do we do with it? Today is this pretty simple. We rejoice in trials and suffering knowing that God is refining our faith. We, we can rejoice knowing that God's not wasting it, that God's using it. So let's read our text together. 1 Peter 1, 6-12. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that, were <clears throat> that, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven the things into which angels long to look. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is a handcrafted faith, verses 6 through 7. So look back at your text in verse 6, and it says, we are, uh, what are we rejoicing in? Well, that's connected to last week, what we had read. In our living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the promise that we're going to be raised, the, the promise of all the things that we receive in our inheritance. Verse 5 ends with the promise that this God is guarding our faith. And we are now transitioning um, into God not just guarding our faith. This, this next bit makes us uncomfortable. But he's creating situations that will test our faith so that we will have an enduring faith. Now, not that we can somehow lose our, this faith, but that this faith would be strengthened. When gold and silver is put into the fire, that's called testing they, they put it into the fire, they put it into this crucible, and they heat it up. They heat it hot, 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 and all of a sudden it, it liquefies. I guess it's not all of a sudden, it takes a minute. It liquefies. And then the impurities come to the top, and they skim those impurities off. The smith removes it. This is God, 
molding us. This is the picture of God molding us into the image of Jesus. But we rejoice knowing that the same God molding your faith is also the same God guarding the faith. And we are being crafted by this master artist. The Bible presents suffering not as an if you suffer, but a when you suffer. False teachers will tell you that suffering is a lack of faith or the result of some kind of sin. I want you to know that's a lie. I mean, turn on TBN, you'll find a lot of faith healers. You'll notice most of those faith healers, never trust a faith healer who is aging and wearing glasses. <laughs> right? These, these faith healers are liars and they put it back on you that the reason you're not being healed is somehow a lack of your faith instead of God using that trial to conform you into the image of Christ, to mold you into the image of Christ. Remember um, John 9, 3, when Jesus, his disciples asked him why the guy was blind. The oral law taught, remember we had the written law and the oral law. The written law was from God. The oral law was from men. The oral law taught that suffering was somehow a result of someone's specific sin. So they asked, was it the guy's sin or was it his parents' sin that caused him to go blind? Jesus' response was neither. He says in John 9, 3, you'll see on the screen, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Ascribing punishment to suffering is not fair and not necessarily true. Jesus is the man of sorrow. He didn't sin. Jesus is known as the suffering servant. To carry that logic out would require him to have sinned if he's facing suffering and trials. That's just not the case. He suffered greatly, and he never sinned, and he never personally did anything wrong. But God used the suffering of Christ for the kingdom so that we could have relationship with God and we could be saved from our sin. Now, Acts uh, 2, 21 or 23, it talks about it, and he said, it tells us where the suffering came from, at the hands of evil men. Some of you have suffered, not because of anything that you've done, not because it's somehow a punishment of God, but because sin is in the world at the hands of evil men. Just, it's true. Now, Hebrews 9, 21 tells us that the Lord disciplines those who he loves. And we often take this to mean like something negative, like a dad who, you know, would... I, I, I took the march out of church a lot of times as a kid. You know, you had to go out and get spanked for doing something bad in church. It's, there's a sense of this idea of being disciplined like that. But that's, to put it all there, I think it's wrong. I think there's a bit of it, but I do think sometimes God allows trial and pain um, for our correction. But... Let's think about discipline like this, because discipline is positive. Is there, how often do people with disciplined um, financial habits go broke? Discipline's a good thing. 
football, basketball, volleyball, band, cross country, all these things have started in the last week or so. These young men and women are being disciplined by their coaches and by their teachers so that they can compete at the highest levels. They're learning the little things like form, and their coaches are giving them a chance so that they can put it all together so that when they are tested, they would perform well. <clears throat> I mean, it's like at football practice, right? The, the, the kids, they, they learn, they, they go into individuals before they ever come to team. And over and over and over, they do like this one step, this one jab, this, 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 these handful of steps so that they're in the right place at the right time over and over and over and they're being coached. That's discipline. And then when they come to the team situation, they put it all together. And um, just forgive me, I'm going to try to add a band illustration. I've never played an instrument. But um, like in band, they have their teachers, they, they teach them notes. That's, that's being disciplined. And they, they play that one note. I, I, I remember having a class in high school right by the band hall. And they would play that one note over and over. Right? What they're doing is they're practicing. They're being disciplined. They're being coached by their teachers so that their mouth would be in the right position so that they would push out the right amount of air. Then they add complexity to it. They add a next note. And they do these things over and over and over again. That's discipline. Then what do they do in band? They add steps so that they can march on Friday night. Now, if you know the music, if you can play the song, but you can't do the steps, you don't get to march, right? Now, there's a lot of guys that I've seen before. It's obvious that they've never learned the music, but on Friday night, they're marching, and they're just pretending to play. You have to, you, you have to put all the things together. That's being tested. Your band director or your coach, they're not being mean when they discipline you. Now, who likes to be disciplined? Nobody. But my dad and my brother, they're coaches. My dad always says, uh, when I quit coaching you, when you know you have a problem. Not when you're being coached. Being coached is good. Being disciplined is good. Because th there's no fast track to performance outside of discipline. That's why they put you in the various trials. It's for your good. And you're being crafted by your coaches and teachers to be useful athletes, to be useful musicians. And God is crafting us with his discipline and testing to be useful and usable in his kingdom work. And this is uncomfortable because who likes to struggle? Who likes pain? Nobody. First Peter uh, 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The New Testament regularly sees suffering as the road that all believers will take on their path to glory. Now, you can take this too far. We're not sadist. We're not supposed to enjoy the suffering, but we can have joy in suffering. I don't want you to take away that somehow the suffering should be enjoyable. That's weird. That's crazy. That's craziness. But God is using all of it. 
And I do think it's wrong for us to ascribe specific situations to specific sufferings. Like that God is somehow using that to, you know, be mean to you or to discipline you in a negative way. So Peter is assuring us that God is working out his plan even in our anguish. 1 Peter 1.6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. God knows that the trials grieve your soul. He knows that they're hard, but he also knows that it's just in light of eternity, it's just for a second. This trial's not forever. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. In this life, God is using everything to prepare us for glory. So let's look back at verse 7. So that <clears throat> the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 is a statement of result. It's the, it's the why that God allows trials. And it's so that we would be usable. It's that we would be tested. It's, it's that, that we would be conformed into the image of Christ. When someone works with a, a metal like gold or silver that's been mined out of the earth, they, they test it, they test the, the purity of it by putting it into the fire. And you know what doesn't happen if they find there's gold also mixed with other things? They don't, oh, that's no good, and throw it away. They keep it in the fire till it liquefies. And when, it, when it's heated, the impurities come to the top. And it's skimmed off, and it's done over and over and over till you have pure gold. This is the testing of the fire, and don't miss it. This is the picture of what God is doing with us. And the crucible that God uses is trials and suffering. That's, you know, we, we, we add explanations to things. In the ancient world, they would say, we're going to test this, and that's literally what it meant. They would liquefy the gold to see how pure it was. But <clears throat> that's not the end unless you want to just be a blob of metal, for the metal to become useful and usable, it then has to go back into the fire. It goes back into the fire and it's heated again so that it can be worked. And then the smith places that heated metal onto the anvil and begins to beat it and beat it and beat it. And you start seeing it shape. Have you ever watched that show Forged in Fire? I geeked out on that when that originally came out. I watched a lot of it. You know, they, they start with this square and they just keep heating it and heating it and beating it and beating it until it becomes something. Over and over, it's placed against the anvil. God is using suffering, continually placing us in the fire and on the anvil until he creates us to be usable with our specific design and purpose that he's created you for. But it's all, your faith is only forged 
in the fire. The next section that we're going to look at is the section of, about being holy. When the temple was built, my question is, what's the difference between a regular fork and a fork that they would put in that temple? One was holy and one wasn't. Being designated for a use, that's what made it holy. We have been called to be holy. We have been separated. We have been pulled out. We have been... You, this, this master craftsman, this artist, is designing you for a very specific purpose to be used in his kingdom. This is the picture of our spiritual life. The word tested here is used twice, and it's the idea to determine <clears throat> the genuineness of something. You hear people say, you know, something like, I used to be a Christian, or he or she used to be a Christian. That's categorically not a thing in the New Testament. You're, you weren't a Christian at one point, or you, you weren't a Christian at one point and then not a Christian later. The, you got to understand the process of becoming born again. God does a miraculous work. He, he moves you from darkness into light. He places his spirit inside of you and he literally gives you a, he, he does something new inside of you. You're now a new creation. You can't just go, Hey, I'm tired of being a new creation. I'm out. We're, we're given the illustration of the four soils showing that some will spring up and they're going to look like they are saved. But when the trials of life comes, it's going to prove that they were never born again. There, there's no such thing as someone who loses their faith. That faith is being tested and it's proved not to be genuine. Peter then gives us the reasoning for <clears throat> this in the verses to result in the praise of Jesus when he's revealed to us. Look at verses 8 through 9. We're going to see a handcrafted faith <clears throat> is full of love and joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I love in verse 8, it's, um, the word love there is not a command where it is other places. Instead, it's an indicative verb. Why are we in English class? Um, well, an indicative verb is one that um, it expresses fact of something that's taken place. So he's not commanding them to love. Instead, this like most of these guys that receive New Testament letters are getting smoked, right? This is, this is him commending them for what they're doing. Peter, he's, he's commending them that they've not seen Jesus, but they still love Jesus. When trials come, they've not seen Jesus, but this word is agape. Agape is recognizable to many of you who've grown up in church, but that's this love that, that is unconditional. So these people, we know that they're facing bad persecution. 
And their love is proven to be agape love because despite their persecution, despite their trials, despite their suffering, they're still loving Jesus, even though they've not seen him. And then that he repeats that same idea with, uh, <clears throat> with joy and rejoicing. And it's, it's still in the same way, though you've not seen him, you've, you've, you've chosen joy. This is, again, in this indicative tense. He's just, he's commending them. And I think many of you here today, <clears throat> like, if you're a believer, this is a, not a, con a condemnation, but a commendation for you too. This is how you live. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you take joy in him. You, you, need, you need to, so often we're getting slammed because of what we're not doing, but I want you to be encouraged for what you are doing. <coughs> Christians who suffer well are not broken to pieces by their troubles. They love Jesus Christ and they rejoice in him. And that's, that's the, the characteristic of, of a Christian is that they're not broken to pieces and they overflow in these times with love and joy. And that's what a lost and dying world is desperate to see. That's, that's what's desirable to a lost and dying world. But let's say maybe you're, you're in your mind, you're like, I know that's what I should do, but such and such suffering has come and I just feel broken. I feel like I'm in pieces. We've got a gracious God that's one who scoops up the pieces and puts you back together as well. Our God is so good and he's so loving. In verse 9, Peter is promising that the outcome of your faith is salvation. Not that this love and joy somehow earn salvation, but they're a result of your faith. And one more result of your faith is that you get to go to heaven. You get to be saved. You get to be with God forever. But let's look at <clears throat> verses 10 through 12 real quick. And you'll see a, a beautifully crafted faith from the beginning. And this kind of stuff is my favorite stuff. Concerning this salvation... <clears throat> the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inqui inquiring what a person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating <clears throat> when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you Though those who are <clears throat> through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. <clears throat> Salvation is not a New Testament concept. People want to act like um, the God of the New Testament is somehow different than the God of the Old Testament. We don't have to look at the Old Testament anymore. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. 
People want to paint the picture like the God of the Old Testament is angry and wrathful and ready to smite. And the God of the New Testament is loving and accepting and it's the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and he reveals himself from Genesis as kind and merciful and full of grace, but also one is holy and one who will judge. Look at how he's painted in, in the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve sin. It shows God to be kind. So they get cursed and they get kicked out of the garden. But you might miss this. As they're being kicked out, you see the first death come into the world at the hands of God. It says God put animal skin on them. For animal skin to be put on, something had to die. He covered their nakedness. Covering, this is uh, looking forward to the, uh, that idea of atonement, that covering. <clears throat> and that, that's, that's kind, even though they had to face their punishment for their sin. God promised them why they were, while they were being cursed in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one who would reverse the curse of sin and destroy that ancient serpent. That's Jesus. He, he, he promised the snake crusher. That is God in the Old Testament being loving and kind and merciful, though they did not deserve it. And we see God conduct himself like this time after time as Israel would enter into sin. Look at verse 10. This is about to get cool. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, and you know they want to act again like grace is a New Testament concept. We're being told here that it's an Old Testament concept that was <laughs> to be yours, searched and inquired about carefully. God, this master artist, painstakingly paints the portrait of Christ through 39 books in the Old Testament. Almost 40 authors. They were every occupation from king to farmer to poet over a period of a thousand years. And here's, uh, I'm about to paint for you just a quick picture of how each book paints the Christ. But each of these books, there's way more than what I'm about to show you, and there's a ton of overlap. So let's look at Genesis. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. He's the bow in the rainbow holding back the wrath of God. He's the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, and he's the ram in the bush. In the book of Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. He's the rescue from, from the land of oppression and sin. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In number, he is the pillar of cloud by days and the pillar of fire by night that will lead the people to the promised land. In Deuteronomy, he's the greater Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army and the deliverer of the promise. He's the one that will open the sea and take us from one land into the other. In Judges, he's a greater judge. Those judges were flawed, but our judge is perfect. It, judges makes us look to one who is greater. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer who displays hesed love and covenant faithfulness. In First and Second Samuel, he is the seed of David. In Kings and Chronicles, we see 
flawed and broken kings who die one after another, but he is the perfect king who will reign forever and ever. Amen. In Ezra, he is the keeper of the covenant and he brings God's people out of exile back into the promised land. In Nehemiah, he is the intercessor. He is the rebuilder of everything that has been broken. In Esther, he is the advocate and protector like Mordecai. In Job, he is the everlasting redeemer. He's the counselor. He's the one that draws near in our pain. In Psalm, he is the shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's the meaning of life that everyone's searching for. In the, songs, uh, in the Song of Solomon, he is the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace, the suffering servant, Emmanuel, God among us. In Jeremiah, he's the establisher of the new covenant. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the good shepherd, the son of David, our glorious Lord. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband to an unfaithful bride willing to do anything to bring her back and redeem her. In Joel, he is the outpourer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is the judge and our savior. In Jonah, he is the risen prophet and he is the powerful preacher. In Micah, he is the ruler of this new kingdom of God who will come from Bethlehem and the city of David. In Nahum, he is our stronghold. In Habakkuk, he is the watchman and the covenant keeper. In Zephaniah, he is mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer, and he is God who will dwell in the midst of his people. In Zechariah, he is the branch of David. He is the one who is pierced for us. He is the one who will bring peace to earth. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, and there is a reason, First Peter, that Peter is using this, this illustration. He is God's messenger of truth that will melt away all impurities. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Look at that text with me. All these things are pointing at Jesus. They, they are veiled, as Hebrews told us. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, this is the Lord, this is Jesus, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? <clears throat> For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and as a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. It's all pointing to Jesus. You'll remember when Jesus rose from the dead that he appeared on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. So let me just paint the scene real quick. <clears throat> These two followers, Jesus had, had been crucified, he had rose again, and these two guys, they were walking back from Jerusalem, and they were just trying to make sense of the weekend. Like, what just happened? And Jesus shows up, and he's disguised. He's disguised who he is to them. 
And he's like, so what are y'all talking about? And they're like, are you the only person in the planet who hasn't heard what just happened? He's like, no, tell me. So they begin to tell him, and they begin to ask questions and tell him about the reports of the resurrection. And then from the mouth of Jesus, they get the best explanation ever connecting the Christ of the Old Testament to the events that had just taken place. Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's rebuking them for not understanding the Christ of the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and then all the prophets, so that's the rest of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them the scriptures concerning himself. It is God's expectation, it is Christ's expectation that we would be able to look at the Old Testament and see Jesus. Jesus understood himself and understands himself as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures and prophecies. This book in our hand that we, that we take for granted, it is a masterpiece preserved by God. And it is infallible. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. And it's all that we need for life and godliness. God gave the this message to the prophets and to the apostles, and it's been given to you so that you would advance his kingdom. We've been given this book, we've been given this message that we would advance his kingdom. And he goes on, uh, Peter goes on in, in this text that we've, we've read, and he's talking about that the Holy Spirit He's, he's sent all these different kind of people to you to preach and to proclaim the gospel, whether it's your mom or your Sunday school teacher or whatever it was, some, some preacher at a revival or some random dude who walks up to you on the street, that the Holy Spirit used that and he's been calling you to himself and he's opening your eyes so that you would then go do it yourself. We have been called into this kingdom, and when we answer the call, we've all been commissioned. And then we can't end this without not looking at verse 12. Why in the world would angels look longingly on this? Why would angels longingly look on this relationship? I mean, these guys... They dwell in heaven. They've seen God. When, when they praise him, the foundations of the heavens shake. Why would they look longingly at our relationship? Well, we know that a large portion of heaven fell when Satan did. Did the Lord pursue them? Did the Lord save them? When we fail, God himself came to earth and allowed humans to open his veins and to take his lifeblood out of him. 
God himself desires a relationship with us that's personable. Our God wants us. We've been invited not to heaven as servants, but as sons to share in the inheritance with the son. We've been invited into heaven as a bride. Why would they look longingly? Because they don't know that love. And if you're here today and you want to know that love, I'm going to be standing down here and I would love to have a conversation with you either during this last song or after service about what it means to follow Jesus. But if you will, let's bow our heads together.